What do you do in a time of crisis? When disaster strikes, what do you do when the catastrophe happens, uh, when trouble is knocking at your door, what do you do? What, what do you do when there is a crisis? Well, it depends on what the crisis is, right? So you would respond differently to different crises depending on what it is. Um, sometimes they are big, sometimes they are small, uh, but we all know that crises happen. Uh, a crisis happened in my home uh, the other day. It started when our house got quiet. Now, for those of you who have kids, you know that is the beginning of a crisis. When they're quiet, you think, where are they? What are they doing? Like, what are you doing? And our oldest says, ew, ew, she's eating toilet paper. So me, I said, we'll tell her to stop. And then she said, ew, but she's getting it from the toilet. <laughs> okay, so, so crisis, right? Crisis, which, which is different than a crisis at your job where uh, they're cutting hours and that's really going to affect your family. It's going to affect your income, right? Those two crises are different and so you would respond to them uh, differently. Some of you are in crisis in your marriage, there's little to no communication. The physical, spiritual, emotional intimacy doesn't exist. Um, some of you are in crisis uh, with your, your family. Some of you are in crisis with your health. And, and so there are just different ways that we uh, respond to crisis when they arise. So while our crises may vary, there is one common connection. So while we say, what do you do in a crisis? Well, it depends on what the crisis is, um, but there is one common connection. There is one thing, uh, one common thing that we can do in any crisis, and that is take our crisis to Christ. That, that is in our time of trouble, no matter where it may be on the scale, on the spectrum, whatever it is that we're dealing with, we can take that to Christ. We can go to Christ in our time of crisis. So some of you are in the crisis of your life right now. Others of us might not be in the crisis of our life right now, uh, but we need to decide what we're going to do in that time of crisis before it comes and our judgment is clouded. So, so what will you do when, when crisis comes? Will you totally just freak out? Right? I know I tend to do that. Just, just totally lose your mind. Right? That's, crisis comes and that's it. Some of us in times of crisis will freak out, self-medicate, uh, call up a friend or family, just vent. Um, oh, and my favorite one to do in a time of crisis is just ignore it and hope it goes away, right? Um, others of us, the, the type A in the room, right? A crisis will come, and so it's time to buckle down, right? The crisis comes, you're going to buckle down, you're going to make a plan, and, and we're going to get through this, right? Or will you, in your regular rhythms of going to Christ... When crisis comes, just continue in that rhythm. 
I, I went to Christ on, on Monday and, and spent time in prayer and His Word. And then on Tuesday, I, I went to Christ and spent time in prayer and Word and, and reminded myself of the gospel. And on Wednesday, a crisis happened, and I went to Christ in His Word and in prayer and gave myself over to Him even in my time of crisis. See, there's that thing in that time of crisis when it comes, even though we're in these regular rhythms of going to Christ, these regular spiritual disciplines, as soon as crisis comes, we try to come up with a different plan. When going to Christ in our crisis is exactly what we need to do. My hope today is that we will, in our regular rhythms of going to Christ, going to Christ, going to Christ, that when crisis comes, we will continue that same Rhythm because Jesus is an expert at crisis management. The reason that Jesus is an expert at crisis management is because he rules over our crisis. So he can manage them very, very easily. So, what we see here in our text today is two people um, with two very big problems, two very big issues on their hands, and they, they take these to Jesus. What we're going to see is Jesus respond to them in their time of crisis, and I believe by looking at what Jesus does with them, for them, and through them in their time of crisis, it is going to encourage all of us that we need to go to Christ in our time of crisis simply by how he treats these people. Now, We've been traveling through the book of Mark, and if you're familiar with Mark's writing style, uh, he has done this already. He has given us um, what, what we have called a Mark sandwich. Okay, so, so he starts out with one story, which is essentially the top piece of bread. Um, he, he kind of diverts um, and, and kind of begins to tell another story, and that essentially becomes the meat of the sandwich, and then he finishes it out with the bottom piece of bread. So we're going to be introduced to a ruler of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. That essentially becomes the top part. Um, then what happens is we're met with a... We're met we meet a woman who has an issue of blood that essentially becomes the middle part or the meat of the sandwich. And the bottom piece of bread is where uh, Jairus is, is uh, again confronted and he goes to Jairus's house. So that is the way it is going to unfold for us today. In these stories, we find two women. Both women are healed by the touch of Jesus. Both are called daughter by Jesus. The length of the woman's illness and the age of the girl are both 12 years. Jesus has met with rebukes in both accounts. And both stories bring Jesus into contact with uncleanness. The woman with the issue of blood and a dead body. Jesus comes in contact with uncleanness, but in both accounts, he makes the unclean clean. So while we're getting two different stories, these stories are inextricably linked. Let's go ahead and jump into our text because we have a lot of text to cover today. Uh, because of the amount of text that we have to cover, I encourage you to get this text in front of you. Uh, have it up on your, on your phone or uh, in one of the hardback Bibles in front of you. We're going to start in verse 21 and just journey through this text together. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. 
and he went with him. What we find here is Jesus, uh, if you remember last time we were on the other side of the sea, and Jesus cast out a legion of demons from a guy. Uh, they didn't really want him hanging around, and so they asked him to leave, and so Jesus has gotten in the boat and gone back to the other side of the sea. As he steps out, obviously there is a great crowd about him, and what does Jesus do when there is a great crowd? He preaches. Uh, we, we know from Mark chapter 1, verse 38, uh, Jesus says, this is the reason that I came out, to preach. Let, let us go from town to town preaching. And so Jesus does heal people. Uh, Jesus does cast out demons. And all of this is pointing to or attesting to the power of his word, that he is a messenger from God, that he is God in the flesh. They're speaking and delivering this word. And so Jesus' primary ministry is that of a preaching ministry. And so there are crowds around him. And, and Jesus is preaching to literally thousands of people, a great crowd gathered about him. Now, what happens next? Again, we've seen this scene many times. Jesus, a great crowd, and him preaching. What's interesting, what happens next is a ruler of the synagogue comes onto the scene. Now, when you think ruler of the synagogue, these guys were not uh, like what we would think of today as elders or pastors. These guys were more like deacons. Uh, so while they ruled over the synagogue, their job was to take care of the scrolls. Their job was to make sure that someone was there to read the scrolls as they gathered on the Sabbath. Not only to read the scrolls, but he would appoint someone to pray. He would also appoint someone to interpret the scriptures. These rulers of the synagogue would have also been in charge of the upkeep of the facility. Uh, and so they really did function in more of a deacon role, but they were very well respected uh, and were usually a little bit more well off. And so one of these rulers of the synagogue comes and falls at Jesus' feet. Now again, that should be striking to us because what has the religious community already decided about Jesus? Well, that he is from Beelzebub or that he cast out demons with the power of demons. Um, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they are not friends of Jesus. The, these rulers of the synagogue, they've already decided they want nothing to do with Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't affirm what Jesus says. Yet here is a prominent member of the religious community who is defiant against Jesus, now falling down at his feet. He's in crisis. What is his crisis? Well, his daughter is at the point of death. Friends, there, there is no more terrible pain than the feeling of hopelessness when it comes to your children. Chelsea and I uh, spent weeks in the hospital with, with Lydia. And, you know, she was in an isolate unit. She was uh, born three pounds. And so there we are, and she's in this little isolate unit, and we just sat. There wasn't anything we could do. We didn't know if her... Organs were going to form properly. Her brain was going to form properly. And so you feel helpless. And that's exactly where this guy Jairus is. He's, he's totally helpless. There's, there's nothing that he can do. And so, verse 23, And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Despite what he believed about Jesus, 
despite what everyone was saying. He didn't know the future. He had nowhere else to go. He had nowhere else to turn. And so in his time of crisis, he comes to Christ and makes his plea. Look at verse 24. Slow down and let these five words sink in. Think about where Jairus is. Think about what he's experiencing, what he's going through as he falls at Jesus' feet in his time of crisis, in his time of need, in his time of desperation. And he went with him. Jesus puts on pause his primary ministry. What's he there to do? He's there preaching. Thousands of people are gathered to hear him preach, yet this one man pushes through the crowd and falls at Jesus' feet and implores him and begs him and urges him, please enter into my crisis. And he went with him. He left the crowd behind him. He stopped what he was doing. You, you, you have to see, this is, this is astonishing. This is crazy. This is... He, Jairus, really, come on, that's, this is the life of one little girl, okay? Um, do you see the thousands here? I mean, do you see the implications of my preaching to the thousands? Don't you see that that can spread out to millions beyond that, Jairus? I'm a little busy. Oh, did I mention I'm God in the flesh? I'm kind of got some other stuff going on here. You know, I'm on the way to the cross. That's kind of a big deal. No. That is not the heart of Jesus. That is not the attitude of Jesus. Jesus stops what he's doing and goes with this man and enters into his crisis. If you're taking notes, number one, Jesus is willing to enter into your crisis. Jesus is not too busy running the universe. He is willing to get into your work crisis. He is willing to get into your marriage crisis, your financial crisis, your addiction crisis, your health crisis, your depression crisis, your parenting crisis, your body image crisis. There is no crisis that Jesus is not willing to enter into. He goes with him. Yeah, I'll go. Jesus, I don't have any other option. I don't know what to do. Will you please help? Jesus says, yes. Yes, I will go with you. Here's the astonishing thing. Even if you have created the crisis yourself, he enters into it. This crisis here, Jairus didn't, he didn't create this crisis. I mean, this is sickness, this is disease. But how many crises in our lives have we created for ourselves? We got ourselves into the mess. Yet Jesus says, hey, I know you got yourself into this mess and I'm gonna enter into it with you. Jesus is willing to enter into our crisis. Why? Because he cares Friends, Jesus cares about your crisis. Number two, Jesus cares about your crisis. So oftentimes in my prayer life, I, I catch myself thinking this way. You know, there, there are missionaries around the world who are dying for their faith. You know, um, there are uh, 
evil governments that are oppressing and killing their people. There are uh, homeless children walking the street and human trafficking is still a major issue on our planet. Um, My finances is really, really low on the scale to the Lord. I mean, with everything else he's got going on, I mean, do I really bring this to him? Does Jesus really care about my emotional state? Does, does Jesus really care that, you know, uh, we're struggling in this area? I mean, with all the other stuff that he's got going on, I'll keep this one to myself. I won't ask Jesus to enter into this crisis because it's so tiny. It's so small. It's so insignificant. It's too insignificant for the Lord to even really care about. Friends, let us be reminded uh, The God of the universe is the greatest multitasker there is. Okay, so he can handle the world's issues and your issues at the same time. Uh, He he is the creator God of the universe who by his very word spoke everything into existence. And so he can worry about missionaries overseas. Um, He can worry about evil governments that are killing their people. He can worry about human trafficking and he can worry about your marriage. He can worry about your finances. He can worry about your parenting struggles. Jesus is concerned about your depression. Jesus is concerned with your crisis. He's concerned because he cares. He is willing to enter into your crisis because he cares about you. So, don't think that Jesus doesn't have time to worry about your financial issues. Friends, listen to this. In our pursuit to understand the power of God, the sheer size and scope of who he is and what he does, don't lose the closeness, the nearness, and the tenderness of God. He is totally otherly, and he identifies with us. He is massive and beyond our imagination, yet he makes himself small in order to draw near to us. This is the God we serve. And so jot this down. It's true that he is king, but he is the king that can be bothered. He is king. I mean, he is king, lord, ruler of the universe. And usually when you think, when, when, when your brain space, um, you know, goes there, that, that he is king, lord, ruler of the universe, I mean, you don't, you don't just kick in the door to the throne room and go bother the king, right? There's, there's guys outside with, the, you know, the big spears. And when you try to go in, you know, they go, you know, they're blocked. You know, you can't go, you know, don't bother the king, right? You, you only bother the king if, you know, something's blowing up, if it's... And yet the word of God says we can freely go into the throne room of grace. He is the king, absolutely. And he's sitting on the throne, but he's also the father who when the, when the doors open and the guard lets you in, he, he's excited to see you because he's your dad. And he says, come to me. And you, you go running to him and he, and he picks you up and puts you in his lap and he wants to know what's going on from the biggest thing that's happening in your life to the most small and insignificant thing. The other night, I, I found myself uh, in my pajamas outside at 10 o'clock at night searching for a baby doll. A grown man in his pajamas outside, looking for Jackie, the American Girl doll. 
And, and I hope to continue to be that way. Fathers, dads in particular, let us, let us continue to be that way. Let us be the dads who can be bothered. Because that is a reflection of who God is. It's a reflection of how he views us. That while, yes, he is managing the universe, um, he is still concerned about you and what you want and where you are. And he is concerned about the crisis that you find yourself in. Now, uh, Jairus here has made his plea and Jesus has gone with him. Uh, the crowd is still jostling around, and uh, you'll notice this refrain in the Gospel of Mark that the crowd often impedes Jesus. The, the, the big crowds are not a sign of the success of Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, as we see the crowds, they, they keep getting in the way. And so here, it's the exact same thing. And a great crowd followed him, and thronged about him. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. We're introduced to this woman uh, and her state is uh, very bad. Apparently, she has a reoccurring menstrual hemorrhage, and she has a very complex gynecological problem. According to the Torah, women were unclean for seven days after their cycle, and so this woman is essentially perpetually unclean. I want you to think about the implications of that because if you were unclean, you had to be separated or away from the people of God um, for seven days. And so here is this issue, this lady with this issue uh, where she is constantly bleeding. And so um, ceremonially, she's seen as unclean. In, in the community, she is an outcast. Again, think about the implications of that. It, this has been going on with her for 12 years. I mean, if she had a family, if she were married Likely the husband would have divorced her. Likely her kids would have left her. And because she was unclean, anyone that she touches is unclean. I mean, has this woman been hugged in 12 years? She is seen as unclean. She is viewed as dirty. And she likely feels that way about herself. She had been to the doctors and uh, it's not getting any better. Just look at 26 and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not better, but rather grew worse. Um, as you can imagine, this type of complex um, issue that she had, uh, you know, invasive surgery in first century Palestine was probably nothing to write home about. They, they probably didn't have a way to cure this. There was, there was nothing that could be done. So again, this is a woman that is in crisis. This type of issue that she is having could have led to uh, further infection, which could have led to her death. 
again, ostracized from her family, ostracized from the community. And yet, she heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jairus is named in this story. We know him. We, we get his title, Jairus, ruler of the synagogue. Um, he comes directly in front of Jesus. He gets in the way of Jesus. He interrupts Jesus. This woman is not named, and instead of coming directly in front of Jesus, she comes up behind Jesus. Again, what does she believe about him? We don't know. It's not told to us. But here's what we do know. She heard about Jesus. She came to Jesus in her time of crisis, and she reaches out to take hold of Jesus in her time of crisis. She heard, she came, and she touched. And what happens? Immediately, the flow of blood dried up. If you're taking notes, number three, Jesus is an expert at turning crisis into blessing. What was her biggest crisis? This issue of blood that had her ostracized from her family, from her community, from, from life with other people, this, this life-threatening illness that she had. This was her crisis. And as she takes it to Jesus, immediately she is healed. Jesus is an expert at taking something that is a crisis and turning it into a blessing. The, the children of Israel are in bondage and slavery in Egypt. Crisis, right? What does God do? Well, he sets them free. Blessing. That, that's, that's a huge blessing. They're, they're fleeing Egypt and, and the, the Egyptian army starts chasing them to hunt them down and kill them. Pretty big crisis, right? And what does God do? Oh, uh, he only opens up an entire sea so they can escape. I mean, that's, that's a blessing. Then they're in the wilderness where there's no food, there's no water. That's a crisis. What does God do? He makes it rain bread and makes water come out of a rock. Okay, he, he is an expert at taking crisis and turning them into blessing. This nation then is wandering in the wilderness and uh, you know, he's making bread rain from heaven, water's coming out of the rock, but, but they need a place to stay. They need a permanent land. And so God gives them the promised land crisis. There's already people living in it and the big city that's right there in the middle has some pretty serious walls. That's a crisis. What does God do? He makes the walls fall down. He is an expert at taking crisis and turning them into a blessing when we take that crisis to him. He knows what he is doing. Let him do it. You know why I don't work on my truck? Because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a mechanic. I can change the oil. Uh, you know, change the oil filter, uh, maybe the air filter, but that's about it, right? There's a, you know, a lot of, you know, wheels and all kinds of stuff in there. I don't know what it is. I don't even know where the flux capacitor is in that thing. I don't know anything about it. So instead of me getting in there and try to handle my own crisis, I take it to a mechanic because the mechanic knows what he's doing. He's an expert. And so 
when we come up on crisis in our life, why don't we just take it to the expert? Why don't in the regular rhythms of us going to Christ in our daily life when things are fine, when crisis hits, let us continue in that rhythm of just taking our crisis to Christ. That's exactly what happens here. Now what happens next is very interesting And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. I would love to ask Jesus what that's like. (laughs) I mean, because Mark doesn't explain, you know, how, I mean, he's just walking along and then, you know, the light bulb comes on for him. Oh, that just happened. Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Did Jesus not know who had touched him? Did Jesus not know whom the power that he felt go out of him had went to? That's the question we should ask of the text. And the disciples said to him, again, you can almost hear this mocking, rebuking tone, like, really? You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your disease. Did Jesus not know who had touched him? Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the power had gone out from him, and he knew who had received the power. You see, God is in the habit of asking questions that he knows the answer to. As he goes walking through the garden and says, Adam, where are you? It is not as if God did not know where Adam was. It is that God is in the habit of asking questions that he knows the answer to, to make a point in us. So what point is he trying to make here? Why uh, why ask that? Why didn't he just turn around? Okay, so he's got a couple of options here. Uh, Option one is uh, he just lets lets it ride, right? He's, He's on the way Uh, he stopped preaching and is on the way to save a little girl's life. So why not just keep walking? Uh, As he's walking, boom, feels the power go out, and he just, in his mind, says, boom, amen. Right? We did it again. Awesome. We just healed somebody and keep on his way. But no, he stops. In in Jairus' crisis, Christ stops and addresses this woman and turns. And why didn't he say, hey, you, and point her out of the So what is the point? What is Jesus trying to bring out of this woman? Is he going to give her the reprimand? Friends, let's remember she broke the law. She's unclean. She's not supposed to be in the crowd. I mean, you know that people around her, I mean, they're jostling. She's touching people. I mean, she's not supposed to be there because she is unclean. And she certainly is not supposed to be touching him because he is so holy. She is defiled, unclean, yet she is touched. I mean, Jesus is going to, you know, turn around. Who touched me? It's you. You're in big trouble. 
Is that the point? Is that what Jesus is doing? Absolutely not. You see, this woman came for a miracle, but Jesus wants to give her something more. He wants to give her a relationship. Not only does he want to heal her body, he wants to heal her soul. You see, because her body is eventually going to get sick and die. And so there's got to be something more here. I want you to see the compassion of Jesus. He's drawing her in. Who touched me? Look back at how he addresses her and what he says to her. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. There she is thinking that by touching his garment, you see, there was, there was no magic in Jesus' clothes. This isn't Frosty the Snowman. You know, there must have been some magic in that old top hat they found. You know, there, there's no magic in Jesus' clothes. It was her faith that had healed her, not, not touching his garment. And so Jesus is drawing her into a relationship with him and instructing her that because you believed in me, that is what has healed you. And so he is opening up and giving her a relationship with him in order not just to give her the miracle, but to give her a relationship with him, to give her life everlasting. That is what Jesus is doing by asking this question. He addresses her daughter. What's interesting is that both women in this story, this is the way Jesus addresses them. Very tenderly, very softly, in a very loving way, calls them daughter. He says to her, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus not only restores her health, brings her into a relationship with him, but he restores her publicly back to a community that she was outcast from. Now, if you're taking notes, why do we go to Jesus in our time of crisis? Because Jesus is tender to us in our time of crisis. He's so tender to us. You see, usually in time of crisis, tenderness uh, isn't really the deal. You know, uh, if there is a crisis overseas, uh, we send in SEAL Team 6, okay? Uh, and there's nothing tender about SEAL Team 6. Uh, if a company is in crisis, you know, they're losing, uh, you know, shareholders and the company's going under, they bring in one of those guys, you know, they call him the fixer, right? And he comes in and he fires a bunch of people, he cuts the budget, he does all this stuff, and he's not very tender in the time of crisis. But you see, Jesus is powerful enough to be tender in a time of crisis. It's what Jesus does. Now, Jesus has shown his power by healing this woman. He has shown his tenderness in calling her daughter. We have seen the first portion of the story, the middle portion of the story. Now let's see what happens next. Verse 35. While he was still speaking... You have to, in your mind, imagine what Jairus is going through at this time. If, if time were ever of the essence, time is of the essence when your child's life is on the line. J Jesus, 
Come on. Forget about her. She's been sick for 12 years. She can be sick for a few more hours, Jesus. Come on, let's go, let's go. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. For Jairus, the crisis was not averted. He had brought the crisis of his daughter's sickness to Jesus. He didn't want her to die. That's exactly what he asked Jesus. Please come lay your hands on her so that she might live. Well, the crisis was not averted because she died. I thought Jesus was the crisis expert. Number five, if you're taking notes. Jesus most likely will not deal with your crisis the way you want him to. Um, For most of us, when crisis happens, we want the nuclear option. Uh, When crisis happens, we want fire from heaven, okay? Okay. You know, again, back to the children of Israel, you can imagine them um, on the run. The Egyptian army is behind them and the nation of Israel saying, hey, Lord, how about some fire from heaven right now? That would be nice. God says, no, I'm going to do this thing with the sea. The sea, Lord? Yes, the sea. Not fire from heaven. Uh, Lord, there's uh, the the city, it's there. There's these big giant walls. Um, uh, Fire from heaven, Lord. Now, um, I want you to walk around it. Uh, uh, Lord, there's a a giant and his name is Goliath and he is uh, taunting the nation. Um, Do the fire from heaven thing. No, I've got this little boy with a rock thing I'm gonna do. Uh, Lord, they're, they're, they're cutting my hours at work. You know, do the fire from heaven thing on my boss. You know, do the fire from heaven thing on my spouse. I mean, don't totally consume them with fire, you know, but uh, a few third degree burns might help our communication. In time of crisis, we want the fire from heaven, God. We want the nuclear option. We want him to do it right here, right now. And as a matter of fact, we have a three-step plan and process that we can give to God. And if he would just work that plan in our time of crisis, the crisis would be over. But just like Jesus did not work Jairus' plan, Uh, He didn't solve Jairus' crisis like Jairus wanted to. He will likely not solve our crisis like we want him to. His ways are beyond ours. His ways are wholly and totally different. But here's what he does do. Jesus calls us in times of crisis to trust him. Look back at verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. In the face of the death of his daughter, Jesus tells him not to fear, but only believe. 
Can you imagine a group of people? Can you imagine Gospel Community Church being the type of people who are fearless in the face of crisis? Because of the power of Jesus. Because we are so certain in the power of Jesus. That when crisis comes, we don't worry about it. I know Jesus is an expert at taking crisis and turning them into blessing. I'm taking this crisis just as I do in my daily rhythms of going to the Lord. I'm going to take this crisis and I'm going to go to the Lord. And so I'm going to rest in this fearless state in the face of crisis because of the power of Jesus. This is how he instructs Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion and people were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And they went in where the child was. In the sovereign providence of God, uh, he only takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, with him and does not allow the crowds to follow them there. He enters into the house and the people are weeping and wailing. You see, different cultures deal with death differently. Uh, in, in our culture, you are supposed to, you know, stay strong and, um, you know, not show a lot of emotion. Um, you know, a, a few tears is, is acceptable, but, you know, laying on the floor and screaming and, and weeping and wailing at a, at a funeral service or a wake usually isn't how we deal with it in our culture. This culture was drastically different. This is an ancient Eastern culture to where um, if you did not show overt emotion, it was doing a disservice or a disjustice to the dead. Um, that meant that you didn't care. And so what they would do is they would actually hire professional mourners. There was a group or a guild of people that this is what they did as their job. If someone, if you lost someone, you would call them and they would come uh, and, and they would uh, kind of initiate the weeping and wailing and, and allow people to engage in it. Um, they would also have a, a flute and, and instruments and they would play these dirges, these very sad songs. And as the sad songs would play, everyone would weep and wail and, and engage in this. And, and even um, some of the, the ancient Jewish texts said that even poor people People were required to have at least one flute player and two wailers at a funeral service. They buried people the same day there, again, because of their Jewish customs of touching the, the dead. And so um, what has happened is the little girl has passed away and immediately they bring in the wailers and the flute players. Uh, and, and so you can just imagine this scene. And so Jesus enters into it and he makes this very interesting statement. He asks this question. The question is, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. The child's asleep. Now these people, they're not dumb. They know the difference between a corpse and someone who is taking a nap. They know that she's not really sleeping, that she has died. And yet Jesus makes this statement. 
As a matter of fact, he makes several statements like this throughout his ministry. You remember when he said, hey, Lazarus is not dead. He is only asleep and I go to wake him up. The apostle Paul learning from Jesus makes this same uh, analogy or metaphor in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he refers to those who are asleep in Christ. He makes the same analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, when he refers to the sleeping, those who are asleep in Christ. The metaphor is this, that when you are in a sleeping state, you don't stay there. Right? Although on Saturday mornings we would like to. When you're, when you're in a sleep state, you eventually get up from your sleep state. And that is what Jesus is referring to. Jesus is saying the very thing that we think is final is temporary. And he is going to make it so. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Get this picture in your mind. They enter into a room where she is laid. She's covered with a blanket from head to toe. The room is dark. You can imagine the mother and father still quietly sobbing. You can imagine Peter, James, and John looking on this scene, not knowing what's going to happen next. And Jesus slowly, calmly, gently, tenderly reaches down and takes this little girl by the hand and says, Talitha kumi. Because the readers here are Greek, they don't know Aramaic, uh, the readers of Mark would. Mark then gives us the translation so that we would know what Jesus has just said. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This word Talitha means daughter. It is a term of endearment. It, it, it can also be translated as little lamb, um, or we would, we would say sweetie, or uh, darling, or baby. Maybe a, a good name for a little girl if you ever have one. This term is not an uncommon one. This is what mothers would say to their daughters every morning. Talitha, baby, sweetheart, little one, it's time to get up. Jesus here uh, makes no magic conjuring. Uh, there is no abracadabra, hocus pocus, and he snatches the sheet off and she pops up. That, that's not this scene. He mixes together no potion. Uh, he doesn't strain himself. He doesn't sit in the lotus position for two hours and hum and meditate. He, he simply uses a simple, common phrase, a common expression. And by the power of his very word in this calm, simple, average expression, raises this little girl back to life. 
showing the picture of what Jesus does in all of our hearts and all of our souls as we are dead in our trespasses and sins, laying dead, covered with a sheet, lifeless, motionless, and Jesus comes to us and says, little boy, little girl, I say to you, arise, and we are filled with spiritual life. We are filled with the regenerating power of Jesus. And in a very physical and real picture, Jesus does this in real life and brings this girl back from the dead. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus shows his power and his compassion to us in our time of crisis. Look at this very last thing. I mean, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Again, Jesus is working with his timeline. The, the faster the news spreads, the sooner they're going to kill him. And so sometimes he strictly orders people not to get the word out that far because Jesus is working on his timeline. He's got some things that he's got to do before he gets to the cross. But look at this last thing. And he told them to give her something to eat. How powerful is Jesus that a woman's faith reaching out to touch his garment, she's totally healed from a disease that she had for 12 years. That is real power. Yet he is so compassionate as he turns and says, who touched me? Daughter, I, I say to you, go in peace. How, how compassionate is Jesus? He is powerful and he's compassionate. He's so powerful, he can enter into a dark room with a dead girl and say this very common phrase, Talitha kumi, and by the power of his word, she comes back to life, yet in his compassion, wants them to get her something to eat. And this same power and this same compassion is extended to us as we take our crises to Christ. I'll close with this question. This question had been on my mind all week. Would it have been more gracious of Jesus, more loving of Jesus, and more powerful of Jesus to prevent the bleeding altogether and to prevent the death before it happened? We're talking about Jesus being powerful and Jesus being gracious. Wouldn't it have been more uh, a display of his power? Wouldn't it have been more of a compassionate thing to do? I mean, you have to know the agony this woman went through for 12 years. And though the little girl was only dead for a few hours, you can imagine the pain and the agony that they felt, that the parents felt. So wouldn't it have been more compassionate? Wouldn't it have been more a, dis a display of his power to prevent this suffering all together? The answer is no, because their crisis, what they endured and what they went through, brought them to Christ. It brought them to Him, their very source of life and help and hope and joy, the very source of uh, where they would continue to draw from, where they would continue to go back through as the crisis of life's continued to come. So no, it wouldn't have been more gracious because what if the doctors would have fixed this woman? She never would have come to Christ. She wouldn't have found her deepest source of hope and meaning and joy. 
What, what if this little girl had never gotten sick? What if she had never died? What if they had never seen the resurrection power of Jesus Christ? Well, they would have never come to him and they would have never been with him. They would have never known him and they would have been separated from him for eternity forever. So, before you start asking, why does Jesus have me in the middle of this crisis? Why doesn't Jesus do something? Why doesn't God fix this? Before you start asking those questions, ask, how can I cling to Jesus during this crisis? How does Jesus want to use this crisis to draw me closer to him? He knows that in him, there you will find rest. And like the woman, you'll be able to go in peace. And like the little girl, you'll find in him new life. Pray. Lord, I pray for those this morning who find themselves in crisis. I pray that they would turn their crisis over to you. I pray that those in the room who are freaking out, grasping at straws, not knowing what to do or where to go with their crisis today would be the day that they would make the decisive decision to turn it over to you. I pray for those of us who don't particularly find ourselves in crisis this morning, but I pray we would be aware that crisis will come, that they are only around the corner, and that in that regular rhythm of going to you, when crisis comes, we wouldn't forget. We wouldn't forget your power. We wouldn't forget your compassion. We wouldn't forget your tenderness, and that we would go to you. I pray we hear the words of Jesus today as he calls these women daughters I pray the women in the room would hear the word of Christ today, would hear that term specifically to them. I pray the men in the room would specifically hear the term sons. Let those words, let that truth and reality that we are sons and daughters of the one who is Lord over crisis, let that rest in our hearts today. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.